Welcome to the Marketing Strategy Talks podcast, where we interview some of the best marketers from around the world and uncover their strategies for rapid growth. I'm your host and founder of MarketingStrategy.com, Ian Luck. Hello, all you marketers out there. My name is Ian from MarketingStrategy.com, and you're listening to another Marketing Strategy Talk. And recently, I had the pleasure to interview Chris Walker of Refine Labs out of Boston. And Chris is setting the B2B marketing world on fire right now. And I highly, highly recommend you go check out his content on LinkedIn. And what makes Chris so unique right now is the way he thinks about what most would consider traditional B2B marketing channels and strategies. His takes are different, they're creative, they're clever, but maybe most importantly, they're honest. And you'll see exactly what I mean in our conversation. Right, so let's get into it. In this marketing strategy talk, we cover a lot, a lot of things. So get your pen and paper ready and strap in because it's going to be one hell of a ride packed full of value. We'll cover things like why ebook strategies fail, why trade shows are a waste of money, why marketers need to report on business metrics instead of MQLs, tips on how to grow your audience on LinkedIn, why brand is important now more than ever, and so, so much more. Don't forget to check us out on LinkedIn and Facebook. Of course, visit us at marketingstrategy.com where you'll find the most effective strategies for rapid growth for marketers by marketers. So without further ado, let's just dive right into the talk. Till next time. So Chris, thank you so much for joining me in a uh, marketing strategy talk. Yeah, really happy to be here, Ian. Of course. So uh, just before we get started, I want to address the, uh, the elephant in the room, if that's all right with you. Let's do it. All right. So uh, for all you marketers out there pulling this tape 100 years from now for like historical record, uh, I think Chris and I just want to let you all know that getting a quarantine haircut was damn near impossible. So please forgive myself personally for this atrocious haircut that I assure you it's it's not so great. So be gentle on us. I actually haven't gotten a haircut in two months and it's I'm just holding out hoping that they open soon because if it goes on much longer, I'm going to have to do it myself. I'm, I'm almost at that point and I know my wife is. Uh, so <laughs> I think new, there's whispers of New Hampshire. Uh, so I'm based out of uh, Massachusetts. So is uh, Chris. There's whispers of New Hampshire opening up their hair cutteries. They're open. Uh, so I understand, like however, that you need uh, proof of residence in order to do it. <laughs> no way. I swear to God. Because <laughs> um, I was going to go and do it the first day they opened and you need a New Hampshire oh ID God. or some other proof of residence. It's crazy. What a world we live in, man. Mm-hmm. Good Lord. So before we kicked it off, we were just talking about Portsmouth. Um, I worked there for about four years and I think you have a connection up there. I'm kind of curious to see kind of what your, your favorite restaurant uh, or uh, lunch joint is before you get into the nitty gritty of marketing mm-hmm. there. Yeah, I lived in Portsmouth for about uh, 18 months. Loved the little town there. And then I outgrew it and wanted something bigger. So I moved down to Boston. Uh, there yeah. are so many good restaurants there. A couple that come to mind, Row 34, which is also a location oh, in yeah. Boston. However, I like the Portsmouth, New Hampshire location better. Mm-hmm. Um, and on top of that, um, the per- I-, I know the person who owns Surf. So oh, yeah. Kind of okay. surf. Surf's great. Surf is good. And then Jumpin' Jays. But like pretty, as you can see, pretty much all seafood when I go to, <laughs> go to Portsmouth. You can't go wrong there. I think uh, Portsmouth in general, the, the fish there and like um, obviously the lobster rolls and all that mm-hmm. stuff is, is top notch. So, all right. So I, I'm really excited about this one. I think um, you are, dare I say, one of the leading voices in B2B marketing right now. Um, I know uh, that's probably weird to hear. So, but I, I do want to kind of call out a couple things in this interview. So, First off, do you consider yourself a contrarian and do you think that's important in B2B marketing right now? I don't consider myself a contrarian. I might have controversial point of views based on the people that read the content. However, if you just like, I tell the truth and I, I, now that I've left and I, so I worked in companies for the first five or seven years of my career and I recognize now that because I don't work in them, I can just tell the truth. (laughs) And I know that the people inside of the companies can't because they might be reprimanded or fired for calling out all the dumb stuff that happens in there. And so I become the voice that hopefully pushes people to challenge some of the thing, the behaviors in companies that I think are outdated, Mm. ineffective, um, seller centric, 
And so that's, that's how I see it. And I think that's, that's really interesting because that was the first impression I had of you when I started, uh, I don't, I don't know, um, what the first piece I came across of yours was, uh, but I do remember kind of just literally stopping what I was doing and just starting to read almost everything on your profile. And it was like, you were inside of my head kind of <laughs> saying all the things that I felt in my gut, uh, and you were saying them. So, and if you look at, if everybody who doesn't know Chris, go look him up on LinkedIn. And he has a pretty serious following on LinkedIn for this exact reason, I think, is because you are saying things that aren't in line with what everybody else is doing. And it's, a, it's honestly a fresh take, I think, but it is very much in line with what I would also consider kind of the truth right now. It's, I think it's, it's what we rooted need, in experience um, and data. Yeah. So like I work, I worked in the company, I ran the paid social ebook right. downloads and passed them to reps and looked at the metrics. And I now I audit three to seven companies a month. And I see the exact same thing. Nothing has changed except the performance is actually getting worse. And so um, I mean, I just, I just look at it objectively, about two things. One, is it working? Or is it not right. based on data? And the second thing is, is this seller centric or is it buyer centric? Hmm. And those are the two ways that I look at things. And uh, over time, I've realized and learned and, and preach that being buyer centric also means better business results. Yeah, no joke. And I think that that's also one thing that really grabbed me too is buyer centricity. So I work at a company that is uh, all about customer centricity and uh, I don't think we were necessarily being super biocentric at, at the moment. And after we, I specifically started looking at your content, I think it was a very easy call to just align those two kind of methodologies together and create this cohesive, just be, I hate to use it because it's kind of overused, but like the human centric company, like make it easy for people to engage with you, buy from you, um, interact with you, give feedback to you. I think that's, that's kind of where the market and just business in general is going. I think it's getting to just making things focused on your end users or desired outcomes for those people. Yeah. Um, and one point on that, um, and this might be tough for some people to hear, but I just see it a lot is that most company, no company is going to tell themselves that they are not buyer centric. So every company <laughs> tells themselves that they're buyer centric, very few actually live it. Yeah. And I think one of the tactics too, that you really called out, which I love, and it's basically letting people consume content. So like your, your approach to paid distribution is very different than most. So different than everyone. Yeah. Right. So let me just break it down for those of you that aren't aware of it. Um, and correct me if I, if I go out of line here, Chris, um, but essentially your hypothesis, or maybe it's, it's not, it's past that at this point is past it, yeah. like, if you're running a paid ad, don't ask them to fill out a form. Don't ask them to do X, Y, Z. What you do is you want them to consume the content. You have one purpose for this piece of content that you're kicking out and it's for them to understand it or read it. Can you expand on that a little bit? Why do you think that's the right move and, and kind of your successes uh, doing that? Yeah, so um, in essence, the way that I figured this out was when I was running the ebook campaign, Paid Social, right. and this was in 2015 or 2016. And so we ran um, highly targeted paid social ads to download an ebook. We got mm -hmm. 500 conversions in a week. Right. And we sent out the automatic reply email with the link to the ebook. And I looked at the click through rate on that email and less than 10% of people clicked through the email. Come if on. You look at the engagement metrics on the content. Very few people actually got through it. And so what I learned is that we were creating a lot of friction for someone to actually get the content, which was the whole point of the execution. Right. Right. But the, the side note is that a lot of companies have to do it that way too because of how they're scored. And so luckily for me, while I built this demand gen function, I was able to elevate the metrics that I reported in to the company. And I reported at the business level. I reported on pipeline and sales cycle length and win rate and marketing source revenue. And so the amount of MQLs or demo requests never hit the CEO's desk. Yep, and so right. and for those reasons, I had the flexibility 
to make the choices that I thought were best for the organization from a revenue perspective. And a lot of people don't have that flexibility. And so they're driven to get a thousand ebook downloads, regardless of whether or not anyone actually reads it. Wow. And let's explore that a little bit. So in theory, I a hundred percent agree with you. So for those companies out there that are already being measured on MQLs, they have your, their entire funnel built around these conversion metrics. How do you make that transition from basically measuring on MQLs to measuring on essentially pipeline? I mean, the, this question is so multi multifaceted. So there's the one, which is the organizational change component. Mm -hmm. And then the other one is actually at the tactical level. And so on the organizational change component, like luckily now, like I work with CMOs that believe in this process. And so they're able to manage the organizational change around it right. at a tactical level. Um, the first thing that we do is what I would call a blended transition. So we're not just shutting off the faucet because right. we know that they have X amount of inbound SDRs that are waiting for the 30,000 MQLs to come through this year so they can call them and they don't go anywhere. Mm -hmm. and so with blended transition, first thing we do, optimize the ads. When we optimize the ads and take them over, usually the CPA goes down. So we recoup all of that money. We also slow down the amount of budget that's being allocated to that while we start moving it to other things. The other things being basically like at its purest form, right? Short form content and guaranteed delivery of that content, targeted paid social right. or other mediums, right? Like email can work, organic social can work, but for a lot of companies, we just use targeted paid because it super accelerates the process. And then what happens is we measure, we stop measuring on MQLs and we start measuring on inbound sales conversions there you go so inbound sales conversions would be a demo request an inbound phone call to the sales line a chat request for a demo a contact us submission a get a quote uh, any of those types of conversions when a buyer is starting their own buying process that's called being buyer centric is waiting for them to be ready um and so when uh and when you do that you have to start changing around the amount of metrics right because you're actually going to have a lot less of those exactly the difference is that those are the people that actually buy things and so um we work through that and over time what happens is as the funnel plays out and they get to see the data they recognize that the only people that are buying things are the people that go through that channel anyway right. and right. so um and so as as they're able to see that that they get more sales from 10 demo requests than a thousand ebook downloads, yet the amount of money they're spending to get the thousand ebook downloads is significantly higher than the 10 demo requests, then they recognize what's going on. Another key nuance here is we send no paid traffic to a demo page because I if you send paid traffic to a demo page, the people that convert are also gonna be low quality. Right. And so we send paid traffic to the blog or anything that helps them consume content. And then they, when they come back, they come back through organic search or direct traffic as last touch attribution. And that is a signal that they took the action, read the value prop, converted, fit the ICP. And you see the conversion funnel metrics play itself out over there with much higher conversions to sales, to opportunities and all the way through to close one revenue. And that's so powerful. What you just said, all of that, just covering how that works, I think is a revelation for a lot of companies. Um, because honestly, let me just get to it, man. Do you think inbound is to blame for kind of like HubSpot is to blame for this inbound centric ebook centric marketing strategy that literally just drives inefficiencies? Because that's literally every company I've worked at that has had an inbound, very centric inbound marketing demand gen type strategy is always inefficient as hell. I think that HubSpot is responsible for marketers not evolving from SEO. However, the ebook download things is the responsibility of uh, analysts that drive the demand gen waterfall framework, which is built on driving a bunch of leads and then having SDRs do teleprospecting to triage them before right. they get to sales. So analysts drive this behavior. That's probably the number one. I believe in that framework from accounting from when the account executive touches it forward. But before that, I think it's trash. Right. Um, and all of the tech vendors that need that attribution level to support the purchase of their product. 
And so those are the two reasons why it's happening at that level. Um, I actually like HubSpot, I put in a different camp, which is like, like, why are marketers still thinking that content marketing is only SEO? Like, <laughs> yeah. there, there is way better ways to do content marketing today than a decade ago, but you're still doing the playbook that was built a decade ago. And so that's, that is where if I pinpoint one thing, it's that um, for, for why I still see companies or I, there's HubSpot agencies. Yeah. And we're, just to be transparent, we're a HubSpot agency and we are not right. like any of the other ones. We just are, we just prefer their tool because it's way less expensive and way better to use than Marketo. I agree. Um, and so, um, so a lot of uh, the HubSpot agencies run the HubSpot play. So companies go over and hire an, in, an inbound agency and they write, you know, surface level content stuff with keywords and they hope someone stumbles upon it and they, you know, celebrate their metrics on, you know, we got seven organic PDF downloads this month. Um, and that is just not the way to get it done anymore. And I think that's what's actually so compelling about uh, Demand Gen Live. It's the, the podcast uh, that you run with Katana. Uh, available on iTunes and anywhere other podcasts mm -hmm. are sold or given away for free, um, is that you are pretty much in the paid content distribution camp. And Gatano is like a hardcore SEO specialist. And I think the dichotomy between your viewpoint and his viewpoint is super interesting to see how you guys tackle different issues as they come up. Because uh, the format, for all of you that don't know, they just take live questions on the spot. And while both of your viewpoints are very uh, sound, I think it's interesting to see that you can just slice it different ways. There's always two different ways, three different ways you can achieve an outcome. Um, I think you would argue that the paid distribution is a quicker way to do it um, than, for example, letting an SEO strategy develop. But Gitano uh, would argue that it's you know maybe a better longer term strategy. So there's yeah, there's benefits to both. We're we're both highly skilled practitioners, and right. I super respect his approach. Um, and we both understand our strengths and our experience. And so, like, do I want to start like going over to SEO? No, I'd prefer to continue to run paid. The reason being is that we run paid social to get the results going for clients. But the, the real place where we want to end up is organic thought leadership content pushed out on organic social right. podcast, YouTube, email, which lower customers lowers customer acquisition costs over time. They just need to see the fast results in order to get to the point where I think they should be anyway. There you go. So like, should every company be hosting a live Q and a with two subject matter experts at their company and a guest every week? with 50 plus people from their audience online asking live questions? Yes. Should they be ripping that and putting it on a podcast? Definitely. Should they be taking the video and putting it on YouTube organic and optimizing that for search traffic? Definitely. Should they be sending out the recording in an email? Yes. Should they be chopping it up and putting it on LinkedIn on their company channel, packaging it up for the person that was a guest on the podcast so that they can post it on LinkedIn and posting it through the personal profiles of the subject matter experts at their company? Yes. Are any companies doing that? Very few. Yeah. And so uh, like, would, yeah. <laughs> that's going to be a killer clip for LinkedIn. I know. There it is. There you go. <laughs> Let's just stop. All right. Great talking to you. <laughs> so, and I think there's so much to unpack there, but honestly, the, the one thing that gets me is like these companies on LinkedIn, I, I am as guilty as the next. So I'm VP of marketing at a tech company and I've been doing LinkedIn company profiles wrong. And I think, I've already put a playbook in place over the last couple of weeks, just consuming all of the content to kind of change that up and try to be more human about it and kind of treat it as a personal profile. I don't know if it's going to work, but um, to be honest, like we don't have much to lose. We have 12,000 followers on LinkedIn on our company profile, which is not too bad. Mm -hmm. It's not as big as some other companies, um, but for our size, it's pretty good, but we get almost no engagement on it because it's robotic. It was corporate. So we're going to switch it up. Uh, I think that's the, the core metric that we need to look at um, on LinkedIn is not followers. There are people with a hundred thousand followers that post and get two likes because one, their content isn't good. And they had a bot right. invite people before LinkedIn stopped allowing it. And so like, that is not a metric that matters. Like if you look at people on Instagram that bought hundreds of thousands of followers and get no engagement, that's why. Mm -hmm. And so the metrics we need to start looking at are quality of engagement. And so 
who's liking the post? Exactly. Is it a bunch of people? Is it a bunch of bots from the, um, how do I say this? Is there a bunch of bots from people in Asia? Or is it CMOs and CROs at companies that you're trying to sell to or influencers of people at companies you're trying to sell to? And who's commenting? Yep. Is it those people and what are they saying? Who are they tagging? What's going on in there? And those are the, those are the indicators that matter. I would much rather have 10 likes from exact ideal customer profiles for every post than a thousand likes on a generic post that means nothing from a bunch of people that would never buy from me. And so like, I know that there's a, there's, there's arguments for both. Um, but the way that I use the platform is to go deep, not wide. So like the post about compounding interest that gets 40,000 likes, like is not what I'm going for. Right. Yeah. And I think you, you've done LinkedIn better than most I've seen out there. So I agree. You go deep, you're, you're focused, right? So you don't comment on every random thing. It's just like, stay this in is my lane. thing. Yeah. And you basically really hone in on providing a ton of value and you don't mention product. You don't mention your agency. You just focus on providing useful information that could serve your target audience. And I think that is, if anybody could take anything away from, this whole LinkedIn, LinkedIn thing right now is providing value. And it's really hard. I, um, I figured this out in 2016 and I've never looked back and I have empathy for people that haven't figured this out yet is that when you post and when you create content, there must be absolutely no thought of how it creates a sale opportunity yeah. for you. And I know that that is yeah. super hard. And when people hear it, they're like, what is this guy talking about? Right. And they push back because they don't understand it. But when you get it, you'll understand. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I think that's especially a tough one for like um, business owners, right? CEOs, salespeople, they're like, push the product, push the product. We got to get our product out there. And it, it 20% just discount. Work. Can't wait to post yeah, this on. No. Let's run ads on it. Nobody cares. Nobody cares. No. <laughs> so, all right. LinkedIn. Let's mm -hmm. just, let's stay here for a little bit. So yeah. I'm going to make you look like a wizard. Are you ready? I'm, I've been ready, born ready. Okay. So this is a post from January, 2020, January, right? Pre COVID, nothing was really going on. And you say, here are nine things you'll wish marketing team did your marketing team did in 2020. And the number one thing was cut trade show booth expenses by at least 50%. That's really funny. I had never connected the dots on that. I'm sure a lot of the other, I, I'm curious of the other things in the post are, are real, but like, <laughs> I can go through the, them. I, I, got all I just commented okay. on a post. I just commented someone's post maybe 10 minutes before we started this podcast. And it, it said, wouldn't it be great if people proactively changed and innovated instead of being forced to like, <laughs> if you really think about that, like, uh, the, the post was about people that have moved to a remote sales environment and are getting better results. Yeah. And it's like, because you don't need to be in an office to be productive. Right. And so I just feel like this time, like as unfortunate as, as it is, and I, I really do mean that, like it's forcing change that should have happened years ago. Yeah, I think the image that comes to mind is this guy, the Mark, uh, Mark Cartoonist or something like that. I forget what it is, but he does these marketing cartoons and it's yeah, a bunch of executives one. in a boardroom talking about digital transformation and... Uh, there's this big wrecking ball coming in from the side that literally says COVID-19 is <laughs> like digital transformation is just getting absolutely thrusted upon these companies, mm -hmm. uh, whether they have a choice or not. Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, so I thought that was really interesting. So literally cut trade show expenses by at least 50%. And that was in January, 2020. So they're so good That's on you for gift. calling that one. People are really sad that they can't go to events because they don't know a better thing to do, but they better figure it out because that it's a gift that they got 50% of their budget back to you somewhere else. And you have a really interesting approach in trade shows as well. I'd like to bring, uh, I'm sure you've talked about it a thousand times, but I think it's so interesting that it's worth mentioning one more time. So hit me. Every time I break it down, I have a, I add a new layer to it. Like I, I continue to figure out a better way to explain it. Yeah. And so if you break a trade show into its core sales goals, there are a couple buckets. The first one is, net new acquisition for people that have never heard of you. Mm -hmm. The next bucket is move existing pipeline forward. Mm -hmm. So active deals that you are currently working, have meetings with them. There is current customers. And so have meetings with current customers. Right. And then the last one would be 
um, thought leaders or other people from networking perspective. Right. If you look at where all of the results happen, it's in the last three buckets that I talked about, and you do not need a booth to accomplish any of those things. <laughs> you can have dinner with people in Active Pipeline. Right. You can, you know, have drinks with current customers. You can do all of these different things outside of a booth. The only reason you would have a booth is to get new customers that have never heard of you. Right. But nobody, and if you look, if you measure the results of a trade show just on that, you would realize that the booth is a complete waste of money. The problem is that people put all of the stuff together and say, yeah, we moved that one active deal, you know, from stage four to close one and we got a hundred grand and we only spent 60 K on the booth. And it's like, yeah, but you didn't need the booth to do that. (laughs) And so I would love to see, I would love to see companies um, ditch the booth, move that money into facilitating the things that are important about the trade show, um, save a lot of the additional money, use it to create content at the event. I would love to see a company have either a station or a walking camera creating content and interviews with thought leaders and have all these things going on. And the value of that is the amplification of the content after the event. If you did it well, you could have, you could record 20 interviews or 20 sessions, Mm -hmm. and then you could put them and you'd have a month to three months of content, depending on how fast you want to chop it up and put it out. Right. And so, so that's one. And so if you didn't spend like there's companies that are spending well over $2 million a year on trade show booths. And so maybe you just do it for the first couple of shows and you take the 1.7 million that's being wasted and you take it. And what I've been doing a long time ago, I realized that if I start to experiment as, as people start to see the things that I'm doing and they see what the final product looks like, then they're more open to it. And so what I've been doing before COVID happens, I was hosting micro events in a much different style. And so I did one in Miami with Josh Braun. I did one in LA with Justin Welsh. And we'll have a couple other ones coming up uh, whenever Mm -hmm. we can get over this. Mm -hmm. And we invite somewhere between 20 and 50 people. And we host uh, in a, a fireside chat. So Justin Welsh and I are talking about how to scale a company, how he scaled a company from zero to $50 million in revenue. We open right. it up for a live Q&A where the audience gets a lot of value and we get to leverage the audience to create better content because it's what they care about. And then we measure the success of the event based on the results of the amplified content, not on how many people we converted at the event. Nobody's coming to your event to be sold to. Right. And so if you just, again, go back to being buyer centric, like provide value to those people and then get the value that you need somewhere else. And so we take the content, we have a 90 minute quality video, we put that up on YouTube, the audio gets ripped for a podcast, it gets chopped up on LinkedIn, I package the videos and clip them and I give them to Justin who has 30,000 followers and they're great videos and it's good quality content for Justin and Justin publishes them which then brings awareness to my company to his followers. And for all of those, and then that whole execution is eight or $10,000. And so why are you not doing that in 50 different cities in perpetuity forever and you have a ridiculous content stream all for less than the cost of what you're wasting on trade show booths today but the reason people don't do it is because it's hard because because they want to measure the success of their event on number of leads and sales not on things that actually matter um and so that's that is the long-winded my view on what's happening in trade shows today and what you should be doing instead so let me let me build on that because um, I am in a hundred percent agreement with you on that, um, and we've done something at my company similar, uh, which is run our own conference. So we literally kind of like you said those little micro events. We did something for two hundred people. Um, we called it Monetize uh, Amsterdam, which is like this uh, sub brand we have, uh, but it was basically a thought leadership style summit where we didn't pitch product. It was, we had our best customers tell their stories about how they're improving their experience program. We had uh, analysts from Forrester. We had Salesforce, Microsoft, all of those guys up on stage just providing value, right? There's not any product pitch weaved in there. It's literally just provide value, provide value, provide value. Mm-hmm. Um, and we did that in Boston, Amsterdam, Sydney, Australia, uh, Silicon Valley. Um, and we didn't, 
two, two things that jump out, right? When you're not really actively selling, like you said, provide value, these companies come to you. So we closed some serious logos like Eventbrite, AB InBev, who's mm-hmm. Anheuser Bush, Heineken, from that type of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and those larger companies tend to really gravitate towards that type of stuff, uh, which is interesting. That's kind of another thing we found. Um, but the second piece is, if you get your clients up on stage, these are clients that were really hesitant to do a case study with us before. But if you get them up on stage and talk about it and you film it, it's literally, like you said, it's content that you can literally mm-hmm. chop up, reuse. Probably more authentic too. Way more authentic, man. And, it, and it, it's so much better than a, a crappy little PDF that's three pages rambling on about your own company and how great you are. It's literally right from the customer, we don't control their message. We just kind of mm-hmm. tweak it for, you know, presentability. So it's easier to understand or better received by the audience, but you nailed it, man. It's, it's authentic. You get the case study. They feel great about it. They spread it around their company. It's, it's one of the, the biggest game changers for our company was avoiding literally trade shows and just kind of saying, all right, we're just going to do our own thing. Mm-hmm. And, and there's um, most companies are spending somewhere between 30 and 70% of their variable marketing budget on trade shows, which restricts them from trying anything else because they don't have enough money to try it. Right. One thing that I would ask you is when you did them in different cities, was it the same speakers at each one? No. So we did, we hustled pretty hard. It was, it was a lot of effort. So I we love did it. different speakers, different customers. content amplification afterwards, if you have the same piece of content, you can't use it over and over. Exactly. So there are some companies in the US that do a road show and do 15 stops and present the same piece of content at every single piece, every, oh, every no single way. location. And you could have 15 X the amount of content if you had different speakers and different topics at each, at each uh, city, which is what I would prefer to do. Yeah, that's the right way to do it. I think you different topics, different speakers, exactly what you said, if you're going to do it, and you're going to spend the money to do it, you might as well get something out of it outside of just the attendance. You got to yeah, so, get that so content. Talk me about the, talk me about the big logos. Now I'm going to start interviewing you. Ah, here you go, <laughs> so, um, so talk to you about the big logos. Were those on your like ABM target account list? Or did they just kind of happen? How did that? How did yeah, that good go? question. So um, and I think you'll agree with me on this, because I, I think I've heard you say this, but we we had a show lined up and we promoted it for a good four or five months. And then we, what we did is we made it mandatory for every single sales opportunity uh, to go to the show. It was like every rep had to get those accounts at that show and it was a pipeline accelerator. So what actually ended up happening is these companies would come inbound. We had, um, I could go on a rant about this, but we had a couple different marketing assets that drove a ton of like organic traffic for us. Um, and from like large companies, like 90% of the fortune 500, like we, we had a really good, and we're a smallish company. Uh, I wouldn't mm-hmm. say we're huge. Um, but, uh, in that aspect, we were kind of punching above our, our weight class there. So we got a lot of, uh, engagement from these larger companies. So we would have good conversations with them. Uh, but what we found is that they would sometimes just, uh, go with a different company that one of our biggest competitors is a $5 billion company that got bought out by SAP. So my, my biggest levers are brand, right? Like I, I got to fight on brand and I got to win on brand. And I think you said that as well, but I agree. It's like, you got to at least be at the same level as them, if not striving to be above them on brand. Um, I, I love, sorry to interject. No, go ahead. I, I love being the $20 million company that's competing with the $5 billion company. So do I. Because they are wasting money everywhere. Your product is better and you just need to communicate it. Yep. It really is that simple. Exactly. And you can be a little bit more risky in some things too. Like these larger companies, they're, they have a very set message risk that averse. has to run through 10 lawyers and you can basically just blow by exactly. them, which is really cool. Um, so anyways, yeah, we got them in our pipeline through kind of organic various channels. And then we would mandate that sales gets them to the conference. It's pipeline accelerator. They see the message delivered on a stage. They see the customers, they see the analysts. It's compelling as hell, man. And mm-hmm. I can't, I can't quantify this for anybody that's listening to this. It just, it's something that you have to experience for yourself. If you're running your own conference and you're delivering a message that supports your value prop, but it's not salesy, good things tend to happen. It's just the core difference between closing Eventbrite through an event that provides value versus having five SDRs cold call them for six months and show them banner (laughs) ads and hope that eventually, and send them like, some type of gift for $500 in the mail, hoping that they'll have a meeting with you. And it's just a completely different approach. And um, I, I think we could, we could go in this because over time, like I've found, 
I find continuously is that if you just pick a hundred accounts that you wish you could be at and you go and you go hard at them, like that's one way to do it. But you could also just put out great information and let the hundred that actually want to go from you come and find you. Yeah. And I just prefer that, that route. I just think it's more effective. Um, and so I do think that there's like a multi prong, right? Like you can have an outbound motion going in that mm -hmm. you could almost, I almost like the idea of having like the outbound motion happening on a subset of accounts and in, in the, in the, you know, accounts that you're going to go after afterwards right now, you're actively like interviewing the CMO at that company for your podcast. Right. Um, and then a sales motion might start in six months, if at all, because what I think I'll find is that if you do the podcast with someone and you have a hundred accounts, like two of them, when they need something, they'll actually just, you'll be top of mind of course. in a completely different way. And so, um, yeah, I have, uh, I have some kind of like feelings with how ABMs practice today. I think that it's more like, uh, more like account-based outbound sales of course it than, is, yeah. than, than, than marketing. And that message is driven purely by the vendors that sell the tool. Um, and so, um, I just look at it in a different way. I'm with you, man. I think, uh, the other thing that really jumps out at me too, is like, you, fine, have a target list, right? That's totally fine. That's that, that works. That part of it does work. But where you win is when you, like you said, provide value or you stand out like everybody else. The thing is, is like marketing is a battle for attention. So like sure. you gotta, you gotta get the attention of the other account and you're not going to do that if you're doing the same playbook 40 50 other that's like probably on the low end mm -hmm. probably like hundreds of other companies are doing you got to do something that's unique like hey come to this event that we have maybe even speak mm -hmm. whatever it is you have to have a different way to slice it or you're going to blend in and it goes back to what, what i know for you which is a core belief is like brands like brand 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 you got to be mm -hmm. got to stand out people need to recognize your brand but a lot of people so like when that conversation does happen, you're the first person they talk to. A, a lot of people, I, I've tried to really figure out how to message this because when a lot of people hear brand, they hear like fluff colors, right. logo, right. like, and actually how you drive brand and the best way that I've found to drive it is by providing value with no expectation in return. And so like mm -hmm. never have a call to action. Um, nobody that attends my webinar, when I provide value for an hour, I don't have one of, I don't have an SDR that's going to put them in a cadence afterwards. I have people right. that come, have come to a webinar nine weeks in a row. I don't think they would have been here at week two if my SDR called them after week one. Yeah. But I think people are just, I think companies are really short sighted in some of those things. Um, and then just wanted to transition. So is there anything else on that list that you found interesting? You know, the nine, the nine things. Oh, yes. Yeah. Okay. So couple things. Um, stop getting your content and videos. Mm -hmm. um, not super shocking, right? But I, I would mm -hmm. tend to agree, even though, hey, I'm going to fully admit to you, I'm selective. So I, I give away videos, I give away case studies, I'm still too nervous to give up my ebooks without a form. I'm not there yet. Mm -hmm. um, the I know it's the right way, thing to do in my head. The easiest way to stop is to not make ebooks. Yeah. And so what I found, over, I put, I did a comment. It's so funny because there's so many comments that are relevant, but I commented when I was walking my dog earlier today and the, and the, something was like, they, the question was about eBooks and the comment that I responded with was I stopped making eBooks in 2016. And since then my results have gotten way better. <laughs> and so it, because you stop getting so married to having a 10 page PDF that is tough to read and you start focusing on how high frequency high volume, high, high value, um, items. I think that the, the reason the ebook prevents people from doing things is because you can't produce it in volume. And right yeah. now, the way people consume content, when a social environment, you need to figure out if you're going to take the ebook and you're going to find a way to break that down. So you have 10 social posts every couple of days, like maybe, yeah. um, but I don't think that many people try and do both because they have the ebook gated. So they don't want to give it away organic, which is just weird. So, I might, I might differ with you on this. Yeah, so let's hear it. our approach, and I'm going to give you some backstory. We have a report, right? So it's not an ebook, it's a report. It's an mm -hmm. industry level report that we run. Our last one we ran was about a year and a half ago. We're in the process of doing one right now. So we focus on like a keystone piece of content. And this thing generated 30,000 downloads organic for us. Mm -hmm. um, 
we didn't have to rely on PPC for like the first three years um, when I was at this company or while I'm at this company. Uh, that might be short-sighted by me, but uh, we were ramping, right? So like we had mm -hmm. to conserve cash, all that stuff. I think you can focus on Keystone high quality pieces of content, get them, get a good amount of leads in, and then kind of as long as you're not letting what you said suffer. So like if you're not producing, because it is, again, it goes back to the awareness and the attention thing. Mm -hmm. If you're not out there every day, twice a day, mm -hmm. it's going to be kind of tough for companies to remember you. But that's why I'm, I'm struggling with that, man. I, you could probably challenge me on it, but that's yeah. where I'm at. It's like, I know that if I don't do it, I'm giving up 30,000 emails. <laughs> do you, yeah, I was going to say, do you think those people are leads or contacts? So we, we are, we don't talk about, yeah, I say contacts, but it's mm -hmm. basically, we don't, we don't really talk about leads at my company. Yeah. Everything's a contact, but mm -hmm. um, no, I think they're, they're super low quality. So that's the other issue, right? It's like industry mm -hmm. report is even more so low quality than maybe a focus depot. If it's happening organic, I actually, I am okay with it as long as there's not a sales motion behind it. Right. So I think that is like maybe the core difference. The two things that I see not, not working for companies is one using paid to drive downloads of content and immediately put them in a sales case. Yeah, that's insane. That's um, insane. The second one is using paid to drive downloads of the content, putting them in a nurture sequence with eight emails. And if they don't, you know, come through that, which none, nobody does then put them in a sales case. Right. And so for both, both of those, I just, the paying for that execution with the it's expectation crazy. that someone that downloads a book is all of a sudden going to buy your hundred K ACV SAS tool. Just, um, I think is, yeah, it just comes back to being seller centric. It's delusional is what it is. You can say, <laughs> um, I, I think, uh, lead scoring plays a big effect, right? So like if you have 30,000 downloads coming in, you need to be able to sort through and sift through which ones are consideration level contacts. Like, are they doing things that look like somebody that is interested in buying? Mm -hmm. Um, why, uh, why that, wouldn't you just wait for them to give you the signal that they are buying that they want? to? How would they to send you? that signal? by reaching out to you so i'm saying so like if yeah. they reach out to us like if they request a demo or exactly book a meeting that's when we pass it off the sales precisely we literally we shave off i think it's like 75 percent of our leads we don't ever pass the sales yeah yeah i did the same thing when i was doing this in 2016 unless you made a sales conversion you never moved from hubspot into salesforce in an opportunity um yep. because you're just wasting your sales team's time. hundred percent and yeah. losing their trust, which I've heard you say too. And I, and yeah. Right that's there a with big, you, That's a big intangible. I'm really yeah, glad you recognize that. Yeah, it is. And that's how the whole marketing delivers crap while you're not following up on the leads. Like that is a killer. Yeah. You know? I've, I've really yeah. figured this one out and why that's happening. And so I'll just really quickly, this is all the a misalignment starts at the culture level. Mm -hmm. but it presents itself much lower. And so it starts mm -hmm. at the culture level mm -hmm. and at the culture level. Everything is driven on sales metrics, not on brand metrics. And so they're right. driven on sales metrics, which therefore leads to marketers needing to do whatever to support the sales team mm -hmm. and misguided decisions drive a volume metric because that's what they think that they need. Mm -hmm. And so then marketers do all the wrong things to hit the volume metric, which then drives a bunch of trash to sales and then sales says marketing is delivering garbage and that's where the misalignment happens. And so people think it's at the metrics level or the tech stack level or all this different stuff. It is not, hmm. it comes back, it comes back to culture and it persists in metrics. Culture is one of those things too, that you said it's, it's like intangible that if you're not hyper aware of those things, they can literally just eat a company alive from the inside out. And right? it's pretty much just starts, it starts and stops with the CEO. Yeah. It really does. Interesting. So back to your list. Yeah. I got one other one for you. I think we covered cool. a good amount of them actually. So I nice. got one other one for you. I want to bring up, um, create a video strategy and build a video team in house. So this goes back to like your marketing department should run as a media company or it shouldn't. Where do you stand on that? And why did you say that kind of, uh, that pointer? I think that your marketing department should run as a media company for sure. And so with that, um, a lot of thought leadership content that is produced to to grab attention and create value, not to drive sales conversions, which it mm -hmm. ultimately leads to better sales conversions. 
And so I think that point is very clear. So when we run paid Facebook, this study came out that said that blah, blah, blah is happening. Right. This, you know, this new feature was released. We've just uh, had a new integration with this company. And by the way, like we targeted you and we know that you use that product or whatever. Um, and so we, in paid social, we distribute content that feels like news. Right because people are in a news feed and it helps right. it makes them feel like they're it feels current it makes them feel like they're wearing something it can be read very quickly they get the message and then they move on and so yes um i've lived that for five plus years and i believe that is the best approach why you should build a video house in team or why you should build a video team in-house is because if you do not you will not be able to cost effectively create a volume of content that's needed to be successful and so um, if you have a video team in house, most likely you'd be able to create a video every day. And I believe that if you're not putting out a video every day, then you have, you're leaving a lot of room and upside on the table. Um, and the second thing is I believe that you need it as a core competency. So like companies call me and they're like, Hey, can you like write our content for us? And I'm like, if I was in your seat, Mrs. CMO, then I would want me to tell you that you need to learn how to create content in-house because you cannot outsource content creation unless it's for SEO. People can stuff keywords in blogs and get it to rank, but you cannot have a piece of content cut through the noise and resonate with your buyer by outsourcing it to someone that doesn't know what they're talking about. And so I believe that companies like this is not in my best vested interest to stay, but I believe most companies should try and build everything in-house from a marketing perspective, because if you do it well, it's a competitive advantage that most big companies do not recognize right now. All right. So I want to, I want to cover this because this is also something I, I very strongly agree with you on. So I'm reminded of one of your podcasts actually. So at demand gen live available, wherever podcasts are sold, <laughs> uh, it was the, this guy, I forget his name and I'm sorry. Um, chimed in and was like, Hey, so all of the stuff you're talking about, is there a book out there that you can recommend that would help me learn how to do X, Y, Z? And your response and the way you're kicking this advice out there is like, I can't help you. Like you need to learn how to do it yourself. The reason why I'm able to talk about these topics is because I had companies, side hustles that I learned how to do this. And that's the only path forward. It's hard work. And I think that rocks a lot of people. It's like, there's no wait, I can't hire this out. I can't, you need to do the work yourself. And I'm a hundred percent with you on that. I mean, hell, this is a side hustle for me. Like I have mm -hmm. a day job and I'm doing these interviews because I want to learn and grow, Love but, it. but that's so important, man. And I think that's also for the young marketers out there is super, super underrated because a lot of them get in that trap of let's just hire a contractor. Let's, I don't have expertise here. Let's just hire it out. Um, and again, sorry if that's going against what you do, because you are an agency. No, no, no. I, just, I literally just said it. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with you. But I mean, I, I do want to just really harp on that because it's, it's so important, man. And um, so I got here by building, I was a one person demand gen arm in a $30 million company. I created mm -hmm. the content. I managed creative. I ran all the media. I did community management. I built the marketing automation system. I ran all the mar automation. I did all of the sales ops. I did all of the marketing ops. Right. That's how I learned everything is that I did it. And so if I took pieces, like at one point I was outsourcing the AdWords and yeah. guess what? Like the agency wasn't very good on it. And luckily I knew it well enough to know that. And so a lot of people, because they haven't done that at a level where they really understand it, they outsource to vendors that aren't good at what they do. Right. Or they hire people that aren't good at what they do, but they can't, they don't know that because they don't know how to do it themselves. And so I think, I think we'll see a new, a new wave of marketing leaders emerge that are deep practitioners I hope so. that actually, um, actually could go in and tweak an ad and go in and analyze it and um, will be the face of the company's podcast if it makes sense. So, you know, if you're selling to, uh, yeah 
you know, robotics engineers, maybe the CMO isn't the right face, but like in a lot of cases, I would like to see like leaders produce at that level, like get actually in it. Um, And I do think that over time we will see that, that transition. Um, I like the idea of having a team that is more um, flat from an organizational standpoint. Um, And so, yeah, those are a couple of my thoughts there. Cool. And I I agree. I think, um, hopefully, uh, as these things progress, like I know there's like this concept of the T-shaped marketer out there, um, which is like, for all of you that don't know what that is, it's basically a bunch of broad uh, experience at the very top of the T, the horizontal part, and then one very specific deep expertise in the vertical, like for example, paid distribution. I think it's a little bit more complex than that. Hopefully the new marketers coming up will have maybe like a, I almost can envision like an upside down W or like an M that goes all the way to the bottom where it's mm-hmm. like deep ex- expertise in two to three areas. Mm-hmm. Um, but wishful thinking, I don't know if we're there yet, but yeah. it's, it's, it's good. I think that uh, if anybody can do it, this new generation of marketers can. So I'm, I'm hopeful. All right. A little bit of time left. I got a couple of questions that I want to just blast through. So yeah, uh, you've also around. said that we are, you said that we are, you are certainly believe that we are in a golden era of B2B marketing. And I want you to unpack that on why, because I also agree. I'm going to stop agreeing. Especially, especially in B2B marketing. And the reason that I know this is because it's already played out in B2C. And so um, the companies that have built $5 billion companies or on the back of pure Facebook ads from 2008 to 2015, the same thing will happen with B2B companies. It's already happening. And so it's not like I'm predicting anything. I'm just looking at what's already happened and extrapolating it to a B2B environment. And so buyers are changing. Uh, Outbound sales executions need to change. They're becoming more effective unless they're adapting to the current buying situation. Um, and frankly, uh, marketing in most B2B companies is grossly underrated for how important it is because of, because a lot of companies are sales led. And so smart companies are recognizing that they should be product led, which also means product and brand led because you, if you just have a product, you need to be able to get people there. Um, and so smart companies are recognizing that, um, if you look at the difference between, really strong marketing talent and the average marketer, the gap is huge. It's really, if you are a a really good marketer, it's very easy to stand out because a lot of people have not evolved in their ability to execute. And so for those reasons, like I believe that the, the best demand gen marketers that are leading teams that are driving businesses forward at a huge level, will be paid more than the best performing sales rep. I do believe that that will happen over time. I don't know when, but companies that recognize how much more important that function is from a retention standpoint and a business growth standpoint and a customer acquisitions cost standpoint and how rare to find those skill sets together are, I think companies will start to pay more for it. Um, and so that's why I think it's a, uh, the golden era. I think the people that work really hard and understand the craft will be really successful. Do you, uh, do you want to drop the mic or shall I? I'll, I'll do it. <laughs> I have to edit that out. Sorry for anybody listening. Um, all right. So the other, the last thing I want to cover is that um, it would be kind of a tragedy if I didn't, you have access to a good amount of SaaS companies uh, under your client's uh, list that, if you could pinpoint one thing that almost every SaaS company is doing wrong, what would you consider that to be that you work with personally? Not to call out any of your clients, but. Um, I, th- I think that all of my, not, none of this is new. I think all of my clients overspend on trade show booths. Okay. Um, I think that is probably the easiest one to pick out. Um, I would say that um, a majority, not just at companies that, I work with, but companies that I audit and consult with on a one-time basis or things like that, a big mistake that most companies are making are passing their inbound sales conversions to SDRs and not to directly to account executives. I think Mm -hmm. that's a huge mistake. As a buyer, I go through processes all the time and I never make it to an AE because the SDR fucks it up. And so like, 
I just came in and I clicked the request a demo button and I filled out a form and I invited three of my teammates to see a demo and you're going to have a 30 minute qualification call where I don't see a demo with an SDR and then they're going to follow up with me with seven emails and I'm not going to answer them. I would already went and found your competitor and bought their product. And so that is a, a huge problem with, uh, with companies everywhere is if you look at the data from the time from demo request submission to demo to demo sat, how long is that taking? Because people are not waiting 18 days between when they ask for the submission and they get the demo. They're going to go and find it somewhere else. And so um, I think that is a something that companies refuse to, to do. They refuse to do it because I think that they drive a lot of low quality inbounds and can't, or they don't take the time to sort the inbounds based on the intent of the, of the conversion. And the other thing that drives me nuts about that is like when I run into a really cool product that's super uber transactional and I have to request a demo and get like a BDR cadence, like I'm ready to buy like, $99 a month product. credit card portal and like, let me sign up. That happened literally two days ago with me. I was going to get like a really cool slick payment portal for one of the websites I'm building. Mm-hmm. And all I wanted to do was get it up and running in the next 20 minutes. Mm-hmm. It was like I had to sign up through a BDR. It was a disaster. Yeah, it's really tough. So I lit up their live chat. But anyways, um, all right. So we're almost on time here. So let me uh, get through a couple more things. So I I'm like ready. to do this kind of word association exercise. So sit back in your psychologist leather chair and um, let's do some word association. All right. I'm going to kick out a couple different words uh, and give me like, you know, a couple of like a thought on where this is at two to three words uh facebook ads very effective very underpriced content syndication terrible use of money podcasts incredible opportunity if you know how to create good content that brings value video awesome if you're good at it <laughs> trade shows high value interactions, but that you don't need the booth for. Outbound sales. Needs to change. YouTube. Incredible place to act as a repository for videos and then search optimize them. TikTok. Haven't spent any time there. LinkedIn. The best opportunity for most people right now. Refine Labs. Changing the way companies do demand generation. Donald Trump. I'm just kidding. Don't answer that. <laughs> I wouldn't have anyway. Yeah, I know. So uh, I always like to end uh, on kind of the, uh, the final piece and not to reference the previous guy in your podcast, but what are your, some of your favorite marketing books? Doesn't have to apply directly to what you're doing, but what are the ones that you enjoyed most over the years? I found, uh, it's not really even a marketing book, but I found Icarus Deception by Seth Godin very inspirational. Nice. Um, I think that it helped, uh, really help propel me to not be upset when, you know, I post a piece of content and three people like it and one person says, this is dumb because right. look what happened now. And so I really did find, I read that book, uh, one of the first days I started my company over 14 months ago and um, found it very inspirational. I really like Tom Goodwin's book called um, Digital Darwinism, which basically mm. explains in a lot of detail with really good examples why companies don't innovate. Um, and so I found that one super impactful where I basically have just taken why they don't innovate on product or business model and basically look at it as why they don't innovate and go to market model or marketing strategy or anything like that. The exact same, con- they place artificial constraints as to why they can't change. Mm. Um, those are kind of like the two, two main like books that I'm, that I'm attached to and I really enjoy. Um, and then I spend a lot of time, uh, on YouTube and, uh, learning that. And then once basically like, once you have a core base of knowledge and you're doing like you're, you don't need to go back and reference other people you're learning by doing. And so if you look at like, um, I like to use this, this model where learning is 10% reading or learning, 20% seeing an expert do it, 
and 70% doing it yourself. But most people spend 100% of their time reading about it and watching someone else do it and never do it themselves, which is why they're never ahead. And so the reason that I don't believe in eBooks is because I spent a lot of time running eBooks and deemed that they were less effective. But I think the problem where most people get to is they don't know what to recommend instead. Right. And so I was able to just find things that I, I determined work better, like on a revenue standpoint. And mm-hmm. so um, just by, like I built this whole company on just execution and learning. So just one final thing. Uh, have you watched the, uh, the last dance yet on uh, ESPN? I have not. So uh, I'm not a huge sports guy to be completely upfront, but um, it's a show about Michael Jordan and kind of like a behind the scenes. Right. And uh, the one thing that I really just kind of gravitated towards was the fact that he will pick the, one of the smallest things to get like extreme motivation out of like this guy said this, or that guy said that. Um, and I just kind of curious to see if you relate to that because it seems like I've also done this as well. So I feel okay saying it to you, but it seems like you've worked for some companies that don't quite get what you're trying to do and you see the light and it's frustrating. So you at some point just said, fuck it, I'm going to start my own thing. Is that about accurate? Um, I would say that I'm very grateful for the companies that I worked at. And eventually I outran the company, which means that I wanted to keep innovating faster than what they were able to do. And I just know myself where if I'm in a place where I'm not able to go and try new things and innovate and experiment and move my vision forward, then I'm going to get really frustrated. I'm not going to be a a good employee of the company. And so I had to move on when those places happened. Um, And so I started my company mainly because now I only get to work with companies that are aligned with my vision. Right. Um, And so, and I get to experiment and I get to evolve by experimenting on my own content. I just get so much more, so much more out of it. I am um, very motivated by um, being underestimated. Yeah. So um, it was probably about, I, I probably had two customers back in like May or June of last year. And I was commenting on a post and, and the person that commented back said, yeah, whatever, but you can't scale. And here, here we are. Um, and we'll continue to go, but you know, the company's going to grow 20 X probably from that time to the end of end of this year. And that Mm. was motivating. Um, when I was posting content on LinkedIn, I had some people that I hadn't heard of for eight years and I got three likes text me and say that what I was doing was dumb. Like, fuck you. You know what I mean? Like, let's go, let's go. Let's, uh, let's talk about what's happening right now. Um, I had someone, I was on a podcast earlier this week where someone in a very condescending way was like, how did you even get on here? The last episode I did was with Neil Patel. And I was like, whatever, man. Like, um, and so all those things are motivation. Like I, I don't, I don't take it. I'm not offended by them. It's fuel. Like now I go back and I'm like, okay, well, in 12 months, I want you to be like, wow, I interviewed that person 12 months ago and I really underestimated them. And that's what, I, that's what I'm after. So I kind of picked up on that too. So there was this part in that show, back to it, that Michael Jordan came back to the NBA and he had a number 45. And people basically said, you know, 45 isn't 23. They completely underestimated him. And he just, like, he lost a playoff game. Um, so they went home. And literally the next day he was in the gym working out and like doing this thing, honing his craft. I kind of sense that from you. I'm also the same way. If somebody tells me I can't do anything, I lose my mind and I just focus on completely destroying that uh, (laughs) to the point where I I prove them wrong. So I think there's, there's an intangible there that um, is important uh, because I think that also breeds hard work. It breeds, determination, motivation, all of these things that are super important for entrepreneurs. So I just wanted to kind of end on that note. And hopefully this podcast and this interview gave people the framework to kind of adjust uh, some of their tactics and get motivation to change and better themselves and their companies with honestly better B2B marketing, which is what this is all about. No, nothing else to add. That was perfect. Perfect way to end. Um, great cool. conversation. Hope everyone got value. Thanks for having me. 
Yeah, Chris Walker, thanks again. Um, so where can people find you? Let's uh, shout out some plugs here. LinkedIn's the best place. Chris Walker on LinkedIn. Um, I post content there every day. Um, if you're in, you know, in trying to learn more, you'll get content in that stream. And if you want to start to like, I like the idea of like looking at what I'm doing and then trying to just emulate it for what you want to do. And so you can go into see LinkedIn and then see the stream on, on the podcast and then what's going on in YouTube. And um, maybe it's just like the kind of the boost you need to start trying some of those things for yourself. Yeah, well said. Uh, Chris Walker, thank you so much. Thank you for keeping all the BDB markers out there on their toes. And uh, it's been a pleasure talking to you today. Awesome. Pleasure. Yeah.